Amen. Uh, some of you who may have heard me say something last week may be a little bit surprised that I am the one preaching this week. Uh, we made a decision, you know, given that our brothers and sisters uh, at Williamstown have gone through a tough week of uh, losing a beloved brother, and many of us uh, know uh, new Lou, who is now rejoicing. Uh, uh, so Ben wanted to, to stay close by, uh, understandably. So uh, keep them in prayer, and you probably will see Ben in a couple weeks uh, up here. And I would just want to add my welcome back to the Lazarus family. It is definitely a blessing to see you over there this morning, more than you can ever imagine. Uh, we, we, we missed you and are thankful to have you back. So uh, I am not what most people would refer to as a master craftsman. Uh, my forays into home projects and home repairs are probably best described as uh, substandard. Many things are a struggle for me, but one particular scenario brings out the worst parts of me. Uh, it's when I'm putting something together, and I am coming to step 15 of a 15-step process, and invariably, one of two things happens. You know it. You, I hope you're talking about yourself and not me. Like, you, I hear you all, you're like, oh, I know what happens to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> invariably, one of two things happens. Either I get to something and it's like, Oh, by the way, on step one, you connected something upside down. <laughs> and you've got to take the whole thing apart and do it again. Or everything's going really smoothly and there's one screw left to put in. And I go and it's like the hardest screw in the world or the hole is just offline and the whole thing's shaking. I don't know if you can resonate with this, uh, but for me, it is a great frustration. It's always something. Uh, this morning, we continue through the book of Nehemiah, looking at chapters 6 through 8. We have a big text this morning. So far, we have seen the plight of Jerusalem as it was without walls. We see, we see the commissioning of Nehemiah, the cupbearer to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, with the king's blessing and provision. We saw Nehemiah plan and prepare. We saw the community come together to build we have seen Nehemiah's leadership throughout and been reminded that Israel will only accomplish their goal by the good hand of God's grace. A theme throughout the book is dependence upon God, the God who hears, the God who saves, the God who protects, the God who provides for, and the God who ultimately gives the victory to His people. But this effort was not without opposition and trial. The enemies of Israel do not want Jerusalem rebuilt. They have tried taunts and threats, but the work has continued. We looked last week at the internal threats, the threat of disunity because the rich were exploiting the poor. Amidst all the challenges and trials, Nehemiah continues to lead his people to the goal, trusting in his God. 
And many of the themes we've already hit are at play here in today's passage. The enemies of the work will continue to cause problems, much like my home projects. We're on the final, the final leg. One more thing to do. But the enemy is lurking. There will be more trouble. This morning, we're going to see the completion of the wall. But that is not the completion of the mission. The people of God will find protection behind a strong wall, but they were still in need of spiritual protection under the Word of God. And Nehemiah will lead to ensure that both will happen. I entitled this sermon, The Wall and the Law. Uh, so they're just going to be my two points of the sermon. The Wall and the Law. And I am going to say this. This is a big passage. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read most of, well, all of six, a little bit of seven, and later on I'm going to read all of eight. There's a lot of stuff that's just not going to make it into this sermon that you might say, like, oh, I wish you talked about that. I only have a certain amount of ability uh, to, to put things into a message that would end before noon. So... With that said, let's read chapter 6. Do you have your Bibles open? If you're using the Bibles from the chairs, it's on page 401. Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim, in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Hashem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. So I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done. For you, invent, you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Samballot, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadia and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. 
So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in, these days, or in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law, son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara. And his son, Jehoanan, had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now when the wall had been built and I had set up the doors and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah the governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut the bar and the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. It's the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, this is a large passage. We've only read a portion of it. Help us to have ears that are attentive, hearts that are understanding. May my words be faithful to your word. Would you work in us that which is pleasing in your sight? Make us more like your son, Jesus. Show us ourselves and show us our Savior. That your name would be glorified in all of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to give you one more disclaimer. Last week, we were able to, to dig down deep into chapter 5 a little bit, and I, and I was able to, I would say last week was much more of what I would consider a standard sermon, preachy sermon. Uh, this is probably going to be a little bit more on the teachy side, uh, there, and I do believe there is a difference, but I, but I pray that the Lord will use this to, to reveal our hearts teach us and train us. Uh, so we see in chapter 6 that the building of the wall is basically complete. The doors and the gates were not yet set up, but Israel's enemies were not done causing problems. Sensing that their previous efforts didn't work, they took up some new strategies. First, we see Sanballat and Geshem invite Nehemiah out to a meeting in the plain of Ono. You have your Bibles open still? You can follow along. We're going to walk through it. In verse 2 of chapter 6. How many times do they invite Nehemiah to this meeting? Four times. Four times they invite him to this specific meeting. Right? So they want him to come out, take a couple days off, come out, have this meeting. Now, Nehemiah knows what's in their hearts. He knows that they are intent not just on distracting Nehemiah, but he says in here, intent on harming him, doing him harm. And then Sanballat says he's going, since that, that doesn't work, Nehemiah says, no, no, I'm engaged. What does he say here? Uh, I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Never mind. We're going to get back to Nehemiah's responses. Then Sanballat and, uh, says he's going to publish the news, the quote-unquote news, fake news, that Nehemiah intends to have himself set up as the king 
of Judah. That he's got these prophets ready who are going to come in and blow the trumpets and declare there's a new king in Judah. And then the king of Persia is going to hear what you've done. So we better take counsel together about how we're going to, how we're going to deal with this. Nehemiah recognizes it in 6.9 as an attempt to frighten the people. Did you notice that over and over in chapter 6 that it was saying they wanted to make me afraid? They wanted to make us afraid. They wanted... That's a tactic of the enemy, right? Make us afraid. Next, we see this interesting story about this Shemaiah who's confined to his home. Why is Shemaiah confined to his home? He's probably ceremonially unclean. That's the best guess we got. So who is Shemaiah? He's a Levite who's part of the rebuilding effort. He's one of the Jewish people. He tells Nehemiah, hey, come on, man, come meet me in the temple. So he's a ceremonially unclean guy who's saying, come meet me in the temple. Is that where a ceremonially unclean person should go? Uh, No. Come meet me in the temple where we can hide. I'll hide you. They're coming for you. And we learn later that he had been bribed by Tobiah and Sanballat to frighten Nehemiah and distract Nehemiah, repeatedly throughout throughout this effort, enemies have tried to stop the work, hinder the mission, but Nehemiah is unhindered. Last week I talked about leaders leading their people in repentance and leading them in generosity, but here again we are reminded that leaders must lead their people in being courageously focused on the mission. Think about how important this is in every area of life, having leaders who remind their people about the mission that they are on. Think about it in homes. Think about it in workplaces. Think about it on teams. Think about it in the church. We need leaders who remind us of what we're doing, why we're here, and keeping us focused on that. The church is easily distracted from her main purpose. The church exists for the glory of God in this world to proclaim the whole counsel of the Word of God, which ultimately terminates on the Word of Jesus Christ, the Gospel message. We are called to make disciples by God's grace to form those disciples into local expressions of the church to have the goal of the same, of proclaiming the gospel in the world, of adorning the gospel, of caring for one another, strengthening one another, all to the glory of God. It is so easy for us to get sidetracked, isn't it? Especially when some opposition comes. It can be easier just to, maybe for the church to stay silent because opposition has come. Easier to do like fun things that everybody likes and nobody can argue with. Make it all about fun and games in the church. Make, us sell, make ourselves attractive to the world. Wouldn't Satan love a church that smoothed over the truth, smoothed over the gospel message so as not to offend anybody? A church that backed down when the going got tough. When the world presses in on us, we say, okay, all right, fine. We'll just do whatever you want. 
will stop. We heard you were offended by, by what we did. We're sorry. If the gospel is the offense, there's tons of things that we offend people with that we need to apologize for. But if the gospel is the offense, we need not remove it. We must not remove it. The church exists for the proclamation of the gospel. Leaders are responsible for setting the tone of courage and sticking to God's main mission for the bride of Christ. In today's passage, I see that in Nehemiah, right? Over and over, three different times. First, they invite him out to these meetings. And what does Nehemiah say? He says, I'm doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? He's saying, I'm part of a monumental effort. I have no time for distraction. I have no time to stop what we're doing to come meet with you. In 6.8, when they say they're going to report Nehemiah, they're going to announce, hey, he's, he wants to declare himself king. We're going to publish this news. What does he say? Does he say, hold on, let's, let's stop and have a discussion about that. Is that what he says? He says, no such things as you say have been done for you're inventing them out of your own mind. And then he moves on. This is a huge accusation. If the king of Persia hears that Nehemiah, the guy that he sent with his blessing, with his provisions, has now set himself up as the king of Judah, a portion of his kingdom, Nehemiah's life would be in jeopardy. And Nehemiah says, that's a lie, you made it up. And I'm moving on. There are times to defend ourselves, no doubt. But there are other times where we simply have to say, that's not true, and trust God, and move on. 6.11, when Shemaiah tells him to run into the temple for safety, I love this response. Do you see this? He says, uh, Nehemiah says, I should be helpful if I'm on the right page. Uh, he says, should such a man as I run away? So let's start with that first part. Should such a man as I run away? That's a reply filled with courage, right? He's saying, what's going to happen to the rest of this work if I show that I'm scared and run and hide? But it's not just courage and it's not just boldness because the second half of his reply is, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? The proposal is basically for Nehemiah to go hide himself in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And Nehemiah is saying, first of all, I'm not abandoning this work. I'm not abandoning my people. I will stand boldly for my people. But also, if I were going to hide, I'm not worthy to go hide in the Holy of Holies. Who am I? I'm an unclean man. I can't go in there. There's courage and humility. Nehemiah stands firm and stays focused. He continues with the work. And a couple things I want to make clear just so that we don't misunderstand. We already learned last week. So I'm saying stay focused. Stay focused on the mission. 
We're mission-minded. Keep, keep us from being distracted. We saw last week when Nehemiah saw a real issue that was hindering the mission, he didn't say, hey, we got something to do. Let's just keep doing it. No, he stopped. And he corrected the wrong. You hear what I'm saying? His mission focus included the well-being and care of his people. He doesn't say, forget about the people. We need to finish the project. He made sure that all were cared for. This also doesn't mean that he never dealt with fear, right? The goal was to make him afraid, make the people afraid over and over and over. We saw in chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see it again here in chapter 6, verse 9. What is Nehemiah's prayer? He says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. I think that reveals a little bit of Nehemiah's heart that he's saying, I don't want my hands to drop from this work. But they're threatening a lot of stuff. God, help me. Help me. Leading God's people courageously only happens by the strength which the Lord provides. Good leaders are not like cavalier, cowboy, you know, like nothing hurts me, nothing affects me. I'm never scared. I'm never... No. Good leaders are utterly dependent on the Lord. Fully invested in the glory of His name and the good of His people. Even here in 6.14, we hear Nehemiah again entrusting the judgment of Tobiah and Samballat to the Lord, right? Remember what they've done to me, Lord. Remember what they've done to me. Nehemiah sets the tone for his people. This is God's mission. God will have the victory. We must keep working amidst distractions and trials, amidst the threats and taunts of our enemies. The Lord and His mission for us is worth it. Godly leaders help us to stand firm when we feel like maybe we should give up. Maybe we should change the work. Maybe we should stop. Or hide. If Nehemiah ran and hid, what do you think the people of Israel were going to do right behind him? Run and hide. We see here what the outcome of this is. The work on the wall is finished. How quickly did they finish the work on the wall? 52 days. That's amazing. They built the wall of defense, rebuilt the wall of defense around the city of Jerusalem in 52 days. To my earlier point, if I, if I built like just a normal wall, one, in my house in 52 days, I would, like when you came over, I'd be like, come look at this wall I built. I, they built the defense for their city in 52 days. Performed by skilled and unskilled laborers. Nehemiah mentions that it was the 25th day of the month of Elul. What does that mean? It means that merely six months after approaching the king, Nehemiah has journeyed to Jerusalem, 
gathered his provisions for building, inspected the situation, roused the people to build, fended off the attacks of his enemies, and overseen the building of this wall. An amazing feat, such that he notes in verse 16, and when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Do you remember the taunts of the enemies a few chapters ago where they're saying like, oh, what kind of wall are you people going to build? You're going to build a wall that if a fox jumps on top of it, it's going to fall apart. And here we are 52 days later and they've done it. And the, the nations around them are saying the only way this could have happened is if God was in it. The God of Israel. And He is to be feared. If our God is for us, who can be against us? A little nugget in this passage that I won't get to today, but, but will become more important later in the book. Did you notice in, in the end of chapter 6 where it talks about Tobiah, who has been mentioned as an enemy of Nehemiah throughout this book? He's got like something going on inside of Judah. He's got these oaths that people have made with him, and he's married to a Jewish person. Uh, yeah, so that's going to be a problem. So they've got this wall around them, but an enemy is still lurking within. We'll get back to that. He had married into a Jewish family, multiple people bound to him by oath. He was trying to flex that muscle before Nehemiah too. We see that at the end of 6, that Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. He was saying, like, there's a problem in here. The Lord had instructed His people over and over throughout their history not to mix with the nations around them. Don't do it. Your hearts will be captured by foreign gods. Your allegiances will be pulled in other directions. Do you hear a warning in there for us too? Here's a little seed planted that we're going to look a little more fully at in a few weeks. But the word on this day is victory. The, world, the wall was built and Nehemiah gave charge over Jerusalem to Hananiah and Hananiah. Uh, some people think Hananiah and Hananiah are the same person. I don't have time to talk about it. The ESV, ESV treats them as two different people. I'll agree with them for today. He entrusts Jerusalem to these men who would make sure the gates were closed when they needed to be, open when it was safe, appointed to stand guard over their homes. The city was wide and large and the, the wall was built, but the people within it were few. No houses had been rebuilt. The city was not a city as it once was. So Nehemiah now sets about the work of repairing the city itself, of repopulating the city. Chapter 7 gives us an extensive account of this work. The genealogy, which is almost identical to the one you'll find in Ezra chapter 2, provides a, a verification of the truthfulness of this account. It provides an idea of how big the returning group is, right? You look at the end of chapter 7. Look at verse 66 through 69, you get a feel for how many people are coming back to Jerusalem. 
And it's in excess of 50,000 coming back. It also shows us in chapter 7 that Nehemiah's great end in this project was not simply a city protected by a wall. His goal was God's people in God's place, worshiping under the Word of God. That was his goal. God's people in God's place, worshiping under the Word of God. Nehemiah was not burdened to build the wall simply as a means of physical protection. Yes, that was a part of it. But also as a means of spiritual protection for his people. A place where the temple was truly the center of the city. Where the ministers could do what they were called to do. And where the people could learn and live by the word. I'm not going to go there. In chapter 7, we see... Look at 773 as, as the chapter concludes. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Jerusalem was not being prepared simply as a city for the people of Israel, but as a place of worship. Do you see that in there? Levites. Singers, temple servants. Nehemiah is preparing Jerusalem to be a place of worship again. So with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to consider the law. What happens when the people gather having the wall built. So let's read chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maseiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maseiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, and Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, giving from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, 
eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Chapter 8 remarks the return of Ezra the scribe, skilled in the law of Moses and favored by God, it says in Ezra 7.6. He asked the people. Did you note, it says there in chapter 8 that all the people gathered as one man. They were all together. All, men, women, and all who could understand, it says a couple times, to bring, the people ask Ezra, bring us the law of Moses. Read the word to us. The Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The protection and security given by the wall was wonderful. But there is eternal spiritual protection for the soul that truly comes under, truly submits itself to the teaching of the Word of God. There is a desire for hearing and a desire for understanding. I hope you read these chapters throughout the week because I'm only going to skim the surface. Over and over in chapter 8, there is this, this theme of hearing and understanding. It's mentioned at least five times in this chapter. That is the goal of biblical teaching. Hearing and understanding. That the hearers may truly understand what's being taught to them. Ezra was literally in this chapter above the people says that he's standing above the people in verses 4 and 5. They built a platform for him. There is practical good in that, that he could project his voice, that he could be seen by others. But I also think there's a very, it's supposed to be a picture of our posture as followers of the Lord. We are under the Word of God. Do you agree with that? We are under the Word of God. The people did literally actually stand under the Word of God in this passage. Brothers and sisters in Christ, is this our posture towards God's Word? 
Do you stand under the Word of God or do you believe you stand over the Word of God? Are you the final judge of how important, how relevant, how necessary the Word is? Do you get to decide which portions of the Word of God really apply to your life? Do you get to decide that some of the commands of God don't apply to you? What do you think? Or do you come before the God of the Word and the Word of God humbly? Does the Lord instruct you or do you instruct Him? You read something in the Word and say, eh, don't like that. I think it should be done differently. Does God say, oh, thank you for your input. I'll change that about myself. Or does He say, I am who I am. You will submit yourself to me and my word. I think this helps us in our evangelism too. God, does God, is there any passage in scripture where God's like, I'm really ashamed of my word? I, there are certain things I don't want you to tell other people about me. There are certain things you, I want you to keep secret about me. God is not ashamed of his word about himself, and he doesn't need us to apologize for what his word says. Human beings can misunderstand it, misapply it, teach it wrongly, but when the truth of God is held to, we need make no apologies for what it says. He doesn't apologize for what it says. It's the revelation of who He is. All people are under the Word of God whether they admit it or not, whether they see it or not. Whether they feel it or not. Ezra reads from the law from early morning until midday. Great passage of Scripture, right? He reads from the law early morning to midday. So let's say conservatively. We're talking three hours. That's conservative. We're talking three hours. The people were starving for the Word. They had gone without real fellowship, real worship, and they rejoice as they take it in. Look at 8.6 there. Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, and all the people are answering, Amen, Amen. They're lifting up their hands. They're, they're bowing their heads. They're, they're worshiping on their faces at times. The Levites are spending their time, they're, they're the, the worship assistants, the temple assistants, they're spending their time helping the people to understand so the picture we get is that Ezra's reading. We don't know if he's just started at Genesis 1 and read straight through. We're not sure exactly how it played out. But he's teaching the people from the Word of God. The Levites are helping the people to understand what the Word of God says. The Word of God does need explanation. There are things in Scripture that are difficult to understand. There are things that on face value look contradictory. We're doing a Sunday school class right now called the hard sayings of Scripture. You know why we call it that? Because they're hard. We need teachers. And so while we believe as a church in what's known as the, I'm going to give you a big word, perspicuity of Scripture. You know that word? Perspicuity? 
You know it now. <laughs> Clarity. Scripture is clear on the most important stuff. There's no debate. It is clear. The Gospel is clear. Who God is is clear. But we also believe that we need teaching and teachers. So as the people are taught, as they are worshiping, they are also doing something else. They're weeping. Why are they weeping? Because that's what happens when you come face to face with the law of God. There is rejoicing if you love what He loves, right? So they're, they're re truly rejoicing, maybe. And at the same time, they're hearing the law. And it's making them sad. Because the law reveals how far short you fall of keeping the law. Commands reveal the heart of God and they reveal the distance between God's heart and your heart. Imagine hearing this law read. Being reminded that the people of Israel were never to let the book of the law depart from their lips. It had been gone a while. Had they been obedient? Imagine hearing the curses for disobedience to God's commands laid out in Deuteronomy. The curses for disobedience. The right response is weeping. Next week, we're going to see the weeping more in depth. But this day, again, would be a day to rejoice for all that the Lord had done for His people. Not very long ago, there was no wall. The city of Jerusalem was open for any enemy to come in and do whatever they wanted. But now the wall is built. Now the people are gathered to worship. Now they can be reminded that the same God who listed the curses for disobedience is a God who is forgiving. A God who is merciful. Abounding in steadfast love. A God who rescues and restores. A God who gives joy to His people when they trust in Him for victory. Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites all told the people that this day was holy to the Lord. This was a day to celebrate His work in their midst. This was a day of feasting for everyone. Did you catch that in there? Feasting for everyone. And if somebody doesn't have, what are you supposed to do? Share it. Provide for one another because today is a day for feasting for everyone. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't be grieved, brethren, but rejoice in what the Lord has done. God has done an amazing thing. We too have reasons to rejoice in the Lord, do we not? The people went home rejoicing, having understood the words they were told. And today's passage ends, we're, we're, we're moving toward a close here. Today's passage ends with the heads of the households gathering on the next day, the second day of the seventh month, to study the words of the law. So they heard the, the law read, taught, and now they're gathering. The heads of the households are gathering to study. They're going back with the teachers, with Ezra, with the Levites, and they're studying. And the goal here is that they would go, these heads of households, and go back. 
and teach their families and train their families up. Corporate worship and family discipleship are not opposed to each other. They're both vital. In these studies, they realize that it's the time of year. It's, it's the seventh month. We should be celebrating the Feast of Booths, the annual Jewish feast where the people would live in tents, reminded of the Lord's provision for them in the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land. Israel celebrates the feast, and they celebrate it in a way that hadn't been done since when? Was that a misprint? Since when? Joshua. That's correct. Joshua. How long ago was Joshua? About a thousand years. So about a thousand years later is the first time that they have properly celebrated the Feast of Booths as they were called to in the Word. All the people spend the week rejoicing together because God had done a mighty work in their midst. And I just want to leave us with two things this morning. The first thing is this. The reason for rejoicing for these people is because of all that the Lord had done. They celebrate the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles with vigor as those who had experienced the lavish provision of God upon them the last few months. This was not a look what we did. This was a look at all the Lord has done for us. A rejoicing in His work. Second, these are people who have been without their completed walls and their normal ways of worship for about 140 years. And before that, they were people marked by disobedience and rebellion. They gathered to worship and they rejoiced at God's mercy. They celebrated this feast, remembering the great and awesome God who gave them victory. They rejoiced in the Word of God, the grace of God, and rejoiced in the goodness of the God of the Word. But the bottom line is this. The wall was not ultimate. Nehemiah was not ultimate. And this celebration was not ultimate or lasting. Fast forward about 475 years. And the people of Israel are still celebrating the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem. The teachers of the law are still teaching. But during a particular Feast of Booths, the Lord Jesus makes an appearance. In John chapter 7, the people are speculating about who this Jesus is exactly. Some are for Him and some are against Him. And who is against Him? The teachers of the law of Moses. The people who are reading in Nehemiah and helping the people understand and rejoice, they're the people who didn't understand that Jesus was the one that Moses was looking for, they're the ones who are telling the people, don't follow Him. They're the ones who, in John 7, Jesus makes clear, they want me dead. They want me dead. And they're celebrating the Feast of Booths. And on the last... So picture Nehemiah. 
What an amazing feast this must have been. How much rejoicing there must have been. And now, on the last day of the feast in John chapter 7, the great day, the great assembly, Jesus stands up and basically says this. This religious thing you're doing here, it's empty. You don't even understand the law of Moses. Because if you did, you'd welcome me. If anyone is thirsty, you just spent seven days rejoicing and celebrating. If anybody's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Let them come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Physical efforts and religious fervor come and go, but the invitation of Jesus stands for us today. Whoever is thirsty, whoever is longing for real life, real rejoicing, real victory, let him come to Jesus and drink. The, through Jesus' perfect life, through Jesus' sacrificial death, he said it in John 7, read it this afternoon, they're going to kill me, they want me dead, and he died. Because that was the plan. He couldn't be distracted from his mission. His mission was to go to the cross and nothing was going to stop it. Through his sacrificial death and through his victorious resurrection, victory over sin and death is offered to all. Offered to the children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Protection from the enemy's attacks and taunts indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that from us flow rivers of living water united to the people of God so that we may truly rejoice together in His salvation and granted the hope of a victory that has just begun. Do you believe that today? Nehemiah chapter 6-8 through teaches us that the, that the Lord's mission will not fail though enemies rage against it, that he will gather his people and they will worship him with great joy. All this is possible by his grace alone through our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, that was a lot to digest. Help our hearts to process it the way that you would like and remind us that Jesus is a fountain of life. Help us to come to Him and drink. Thank You, Jesus, for Your victorious work on our behalf. May we rejoice in that now and always. We pray in Your name. Amen.